You know, Advent is a season of hope, joy, peace, and love, right? That, that's, kind of, that, that's the celebration, that's, that's the season, those are the components. However, like these candles that say hope, joy, peace, and love, they're sitting on something, right? Like these candles are sitting on this cute little two-tiered wooden kind of thing, right? Kind of there, and then we've got some pine cones and a wreath, and that's kind of where they're sitting, now, they're the components, but they have a setting, right? And so as we celebrate hope, joy, peace, and love, what is the setting? Where's the context? The context throughout the Scripture of these four things is always in what is known as the now and the not yet. The now and the not yet. You see, a lot of things about the way God moves in the world, a lot of the prophecies of, of the Old Testament going into the New Testament and those prophecies of God that have yet to be fulfilled, they all contain these four pieces of hope, of, pe- of joy, of peace, and of love. And they're all couched in this what is becoming and what has already been done. And just like you, in your life as a person, as a human being, you are... human. Right at conception, you have all the components of a human. And then you start to develop and grow, and you're at a place where you 100% are, but yet you're not yet some things either, right? And so, in your humanity, as you're growing in your relationship with God, you are saved. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are part of His family. You've been adopted into his family. But you're not as Christ-like as you're going to be. (laughs) You are somewhere in that process of him molding you and shaping you and you becoming what he always had in mind before you were even conceived. God is shaping you and working in your life and he's chiseling away at some things and he's enhancing some other things and he's shaping you by the power of His Holy Spirit working in your life in conjunction with His Word and with other people. And throughout the world, when we look at God's activity in the world, specifically when we start thinking about the Advent season, what we call Christmas, what in theology we would call the Incarnation, meaning God being spirit, taking on flesh and becoming a human. That's what we're celebrating, right? And I know there's so much that kind of maybe gets in the way of that, some good things. I don't know what's distracting you today. I don't know what maybe kind of takes your perspective and your vision and takes your focus. But what we're really doing here, even though most of America doesn't realize it, because you can go all sorts of places And look at all sorts of things and hear all sorts of music and never be in touch with the reality of the celebration, right? It's like going to a birthday party and you're just eating the cake and hearing the music and wearing the hat and playing the pin the tail on the donkey and doing all the stuff and getting the little balloon animal and you're going, who in the wide, whose birthday is this? I, I don't know. I have the cake and I got the ice cream and I got the little animal and I got all the stuff and I got the goodie bag and I... Whose birthday is it? It was like going to a birthday party and no one ever mentions the, the person's name or brings the person. There's no happy birthday song. The cake is just generic. 
the party favors generic. It's kind of like what we feel like sometimes in our world. And, and what I've been trying to do throughout this Advent season is to bring you to the reality of what God is really doing. Because humans are good at missing the point. I know I am. I know sometimes when my wife is trying to communicate something to me, I miss the point entirely. Sometimes when God's trying to communicate with me and I'm reading my Bible, I'm so engrossed with what I think should be that I miss the point, right? And so what I've been trying to do is kind of take you guys a little bit to the deep end of the pool with this thing called Advent. Because where we sit today is we are in the now. God has done some things. Some amazing world-shaping, history-shaping things. But yet there's other things that God hasn't done yet. And we see just the promises. And a lot of the things that you and I are frustrated with are in the not yet category. We're fine and we can celebrate the, the done, the finished. We know that, that God came in the form of a man. He lived a human life. He, sub, he was a substitution for our death. He was a representative of our death. He died on the cross for us to reunite humanity with God. So Jesus said on the cross, it's finished. That part of it was done. But there's some still things in the Bible that they haven't happened yet. And those things are frustrating us and they're, they're irking us and they're pulling us away from our faith. And that is the biggest problem that people have today with Christianity is all the talk of hope, joy, peace, and love, and yet all the evil that is so evident in the world. And the why evil, we talked about that a little bit a couple weeks ago. One of the reasons why evil exists in the world is because God is patient. And God has not judged sin in its entirety because He's waiting for people to come and He's calling people to come into salvation. And I told you at that point in the journey, I was so glad that God didn't judge sin on October 10th, 1985 because I got saved on October 11th of 1985. And if today is your day of salvation, then I am so glad that God did not judge sin yesterday for your sake. And so a lot of the stuff that you and I are struggling with is because God hasn't done some of the things that He said He's going to do. We're in the now and not yet. So I want to talk to you this morning about this idea of experiencing the love of God in the now and the not yet. Because I really want you to experience God's love in your life today, right now. Even though you are not what you're going to be next year. Even though there's still some growth to take place. Even though there's some problems to solve. Even though there's some healing that is needed. I know that God is going to do all that work in your world and in, the world, in, in your life and in the world. But I want you to experience the fullness of God's love right now in your life exactly where you are in this place of not yet. In this place of what He has already done. All throughout the Scriptures, you'll kind of see these things popping up everywhere that God has done some things, but He's yet to do other things. And all of these components, hope, joy, peace, and love, are all kind of in that same space. So what I want to do, first of all, is kind of go over a big thing very fast and kind of try to give you a snapshot of where we are in God's work in the world. See, because experiencing God's love requires that we understand where we are in His process, right? So where are we? Isn't that a wonderful question to ask in any project? Working on something around your home? Well, where are we in the process? Well, we're about halfway through. Well, okay, then, all right, then we've accomplished some things, and, you know. When I was a teacher, I always wanted to kind of know where I was, and 
I was always where I was depending on the next break that was coming. <laughs> so we went back to school in the fall. All right, how long before Christmas break? Okay, get the Christmas break, come back. How long till Easter break? All right, Easter break, how long till summer break? And it was just, oh, I always want to know like where, where, where I am in this process. Well, let me give you a snapshot, and I've called this the, a road map of, the, of God's establishment of His rule and reign. Because that is really what God is doing. If you're really wondering what God is up to, He is establishing His rule and His reign on the earth. That's what God is doing. That's what the church is for. And I know that that sounds like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. but pastor, are you telling me that God is establishing His rule and reign on the earth through the church as Jesus begun this work? And that was the main reason why Jesus came was to establish God's kingdom, to, to establish God's rule and God's reign in the world. Is, is that the main purpose? Yes. Well, I thought it was to save me from my sins. Well, that's a big part of it. Because God, as God is establishing His rule and reign on the earth, guess how He's doing it? By saving you from your sins, cleansing you of all unrighteousness, bringing you into His family, and then calling you to get to work. And over and over and over again, we do that. But we get kind of stuck sometimes. And we think that it's just about me and my relationship with God because we live in America and we're very individualistic. We're very, you know, just me and, well, what you believe is what you believe and what I believe is what I believe. So we think this whole thing is just about God coming and saving individuals. As wonderful as that sounds, that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that God has this universal, what some people even call a cosmic agenda, that all of His creation is calling out and groaning for redemption, and that God is here to redeem all things and establish His rule and reign over everything. And we're in the now and not yet of that. So where we are, where are we? Just very quickly, we are, number one, God has already done this. God has. First of all, God promised David an everlasting throne in 1 Samuel 7, 1-16. You can go back and read that. Wow. What a big thing God did there. Well, that's interesting. And then number two, Isaiah understood that promise to David and thus prophesied concerning the nature and makeup of this kingdom. So you have a promise of an everlasting kingdom. Then you have a prophecy about the nature of the kingdom. And then the third thing that God did was at the announcement of Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel announced that God would give him the throne of his ancestor David. So you have a promise of an eternal throne, the nature of a and the description of an eternal throne, and then you have this announcement. This announcement that God is now going to do what he said he was going to do. That it is right now in this moment in time in the first century, God moved in such a way to fulfill this old promise. And then Jesus, we're told in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke 3 that Jesus is a physical descendant of David. So he's starting to put some things together. And then Jesus began, at the age, roughly around the age of 30, Jesus began what we call his earthly ministry. And over and over and over again, Jesus was saying God's kingdom is like, and God's kingdom is like, and God's kingdom is like. And then Jesus said he was going to do something. He was going to die and conquer death and establish God's rule and God's reign through sacrifice. 
So we see that Jesus began to establish God's kingdom at his first coming. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, Peter and the apostles, number six, Peter and the apostles understood Jesus to be fulfilling, excuse me, the fulfillment of the promise to David as proven by the resurrection. So Peter and the disciples, they're like, hold up. Look at what Jesus said. Look what Jesus did. Obviously, he died. He rose again, and now he's ascended. Well, then they started going back and looking at what God promised David and what God said through Isaiah and what God said through Jeremiah. What God, and they went, wait a minute. Through Jesus, God is fulfilling all these promises. And they begin to understand that. And then we learn that Jesus continues his work as king through the church by giving us the Great Commission. Notice Jesus says at the beginning of that passage, He says, all authority has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you till the end of the age. And that's where we are. That's what we're doing. That's why the mission statement of the Church of the Nazarene is to make Christ like disciples of the nations. Because God has done some things, He is doing some things, and He has yet to do some things. And we, the church, the people of God, are being used of God to establish God's rule and God's reign on earth. And last I checked, <laughs> but Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 25, this last piece, Jesus will complete His work at His second coming, and that's the not yet. He hasn't done that yet. It's been 2,000 years that the gospel has been spreading and growing all over the world. Many Christian groups, many Christian denominations like the Church of the Nazarene were everywhere. Two and a half million people all over the world. The gospel is being preached everywhere. And by bringing people and calling people to full salvation, God is establishing His rule and His reign here on earth through His people through His church, through you. And then Jesus will finish that when He returns. And when you read the last couple chapters of the Bible, the last couple chapters of the book of Revelation, you will notice that this throws everybody for a loop. <laughs> You'll notice very plainly that the new heavens and the new earth come down to earth and God is with His people and God finishes His work. But you and I, right now, as we celebrate Christmas, there's a lot that hasn't been done yet, right? <laughs> a lot of evil in the world. A lot of pain. A lot of sickness. A lot of chaos. But there's also a lot of joy and a lot of hope and a lot of peace and a lot of love because we're living in the now and not yet. And so notice that we are at number seven and there's still eight to be done. So that brings me to my next point. As we experience the love of God, as we understand what He has done and what He has yet to do, and we can look at a place in the Bible to help us get a hold of that. Because that's where I want you to experience God's love. In the place where God has already done some things in your life, but He's already He's yet to do some other things. You, you're not as wonderful. You're wonderful, but you're not as wonderful as you're going to be next year. Right? Let, 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 let's hope. And the world is, is not as good right now. And you know, a lot of people, we want to do this. 
we want to say the world is getting worse. I don't think it is. I, I, I honestly don't think the world is getting any worse. Because back in the book of Genesis, through the life of Noah, in Genesis chapter 6, I believe, the whole earth was filled with unrighteousness and people sinned continually. <laughs> I don't think it gets much worse than the whole world being full of unrighteousness and the people sinned continually. I don't think it gets much worse than the book of Judges where it says that people just did what was right in their own eyes and everybody just did whatever they wanted. So I, I fail to see how the world is getting worse. But I can be convinced that perhaps we're getting better. And I know that's a longer argument. And I'll hold that, leave that to your suspense and your questioning me. But I want to turn your attention to Psalm 89. A lot of interesting things happen in this psalm. Some are over my head and I'm not going to talk about today and some I've gotten somewhat a handle on and those are the things that I'll talk to you about for our remaining moments. First thing we start to understand by this psalm, and first of all, let me clarify something. Most of the time when you look at the psalms, you think David wrote it. This is not a psalm of David. This is not one of Solomon's psalms. This is a psalm written by this guy that maybe you didn't even know this name was in the Bible, and that's okay, because it's only mentioned a few places. But it's a man by the name of Ethan. Ethan, the wise songwriter of his day. He wrote this psalm. And he talks about this steadfastness of God. And when we first start to read this psalm, we can sing praises to God for his steadfast love in the middle of the now and not yet. Because that's exactly what Ethan was doing. One of the most wise people of his day. In fact, when they start talking about Solomon's wisdom in the Bible, they compare him to Ethan. <laughs> they compare So this guy was very highly respected. Notice what he wrote in this psalm, and for those of you that don't know, psalm, the psalms were their hymn book, it was their um, collection of music, okay? And if, if, if they had like a, a, a Spotify or an iTunes, they would have all of these like there, okay? It was like their iTunes, their Spotify is the, what they had. I would say hymnal, and some of you would go, what's that? <laughs> psalm 89 verses 1 through 4 read this way. He says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant that I will establish your offspring forever and build your home and your throne for all generations. Now notice he's talking about that promise. And had it happened yet? No. He's singing about something that hasn't happened yet. And how does he couch the love of God? And how does he define the love of God in the middle of this now and not yet? That God has made a promise that he has yet to fulfill. And what is the love of God noticed in this moment? It is the steadfast love of God. Well, what does steadfast mean? Steadfast means I'm going to stay with you because things really stink right now. <laughs> that this is tough and this is hard and this is confusing and this is difficult and it's challenging. It's the steadfast love of God. So when you say, how do I experience the love of God in the middle of the now and not yet? It's the steadfastness. And you say, Lord, I'm going to love you in the same way. And you're going to love me even though I'm not perfect. And God, you're going to love me even though I'm not what I'm, not what I'm becoming. And the next year, Lord, I'm going to be better. But you love me now. <laughs> you love me in the midst of all of my struggles and all of my failures. You love me now and you're going to create in me something greater and something, something bigger. 
And so he sings of that. And it's the steadfastness of God's love that will allow us to experience it in the middle of the now and not yet. But then something happens when you jump down a little bit into this psalm. In verses 38 through 52, he does something kind of interesting. He says, In the now and not yet, we may feel rejected by God. Notice what he sings at the beginning. And then throughout the middle of the psalm, he gets really kind of turned around. And he's, he's displaying in music form this angst that we all feel. And what this psalm is, is it's called a psalm of reorientation. Okay? A psalm of reorientation does this. It starts out, things are great. Oh no, things are bad. Oh, things are great again. And you're like, well, what is it? Because you read the psalm and you're like, this guy's really confused because at one point he's like, thank you, Jesus. He's all excited. On the next one, he's like depressed and the world's coming to an end and God doesn't exist. But isn't that life? Isn't the psalmist portraying what we sometimes feel about God and we read and we see God's promises and we see all these statements and then we look at the world and we're like, what's going on here, God? Because that's what he feels. Notice what he writes in Psalm 38 through 52, but we're going to break that down a little bit and read up till 45. He says, but now you have cast off and rejected. Huh. Let me remind you back, because we have to think about this. <laughs> go back to that first portion in verse 1. Can you go back to that for a second? Go back to uh, verses 1 through 4. Notice the language is future tense, right? For I said, and he's quoting God, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made so he's like, I made the promise, and I will do this. But now we're in the middle. And what does it feel like to be in the middle? That's verses 38 through 45. That's what it feels like to be in the middle. He says, you've promised this, and you will do that, but right now you've cast us off. Right now I feel rejected. Right now, he says, you are full of wrath against your anointed. Ooh. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have defiled his crown with dust. You have breached all of the walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by the plunder, he has become the scorn of our neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes, and you have made all his enemies rejoice, and you have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle." You have made his splendor to cease and cast the throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth and you have covered him with shame. Who's he talking about? The king. <laughs> He's talking about David. He's talking about David because David royally blew it. You get it? He's a king. It's a tough crowd. David as a king made a royal mess of everything. And God had promised, hey, I'm giving you an eternal throne. I will establish, but right now you've screwed it up. And right now you're under discipline. And right now you're experiencing my wrath. But my promises, still true. I'm going to walk you through this because my love is steadfast. My love walks you through times of punishment. My, my love walks you through times of discipline. And I keep my promises. And the future glory is secure. And so in the not yet, we may feel rejected by God. 
But also in the now and not yet, we may ask God how long until he fulfills his promise. How long? Because that's what the psalmist does next, starting in verse 46. He says, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. (laughs) Lord, I'm not going to be here very long. For what vanity you have created all of the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol or the grave? So that's where he's left in the now. He has the promise. He has the hope. But now. And some of you are right there in that now. And you're saying, how long do I have to put up with this, God? Seriously. Don't you know my life is pretty short? (laughs) Don't you know there's so much meaninglessness around here? Don't you know, God? But see, in the Bible, all of our heroes and all of these wise people, remember the guy that's writing this is one of the smartest of his day. Gifted, talented musician, wise beyond his peers. And he's saying, God, this is, I know this and I know that, but this is so hard. So you have permission in the Bible from all the wise people and all of our heroes to stand before God in prayer and say, God, what in the wide world is going on? You know that's not blasphemy? You know that's not going to get you struck by a bolt of lightning? Do you know God wants you to embrace this kind of understanding and this kind of dialogue? You're free. that This is the most honest, most beautiful prayer in Scripture and the most beautiful prayer that you could ever pray is this open and raw honestness before God where you can come to Him and just say, I don't understand and I don't like it and this doesn't seem right and I know that you've promised but I don't see it now. God, please help me. It's the steadfast love of God that's going to pull you through all of that. But then notice that in the here and now, I want you to know that the Lord is, the, excuse me, my watch is messed up, distracting me. It is the now and not yet. We may ask the Lord, where is his steadfast love? But also, notice these last few verses, these last few remarks. It says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked. And how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock. O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And then notice the last words. This is the reorientation part of the psalm. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen. He just kind (laughs) of, he talks in this, this is great. We have the promises with this wonderful future, but our now sucks really bad. And then in the end, after he gets it all out, (laughs) blessed be the Lord forever. Can you experience the love of God in your life right now in such a way that will cause you to hold on to the promises in light of the future, be honest with God right now, and then say, Lord, I feel this way, but I'm going to bless you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to show steadfastness back to you. The goal for us then becomes this. To hold on to the love of God in light of what He has done while waiting for what He will do. Does that make sense? 
Because God has done a lot of good things. We can hold on to those. Notice Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he has predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purposes, which He set, before, set forth in Christ. That's all that He has done. Verse 10 starts, where we sit, the now. As a plan for the fullness of time. So he's done all of this. Why is he, all this past history, all that God has been doing was looking towards the future when verse 10 would happen. He says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained Now he's to the now again. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So what has he already done? He already planned for humanity to become like Jesus. This was the plan before he just before all the chaos broke out. He created us, he knew the plan all along was to unite all things. Me, you, him, all the people that make this world what it is, all the people that you like and don't like, all the people that you agree with and don't agree with, all the people that look like you and don't look like you, all the people in all the world united with Christ. But when does that happen? The fullness of time. So he hasn't done it yet, has he? And so you and I have a task to do. You and I need to experience and share the steadfast love of the Lord, that we're going to hang in there. We're not going to give up when things get terrible. We're not going to abandon our faith because evil exists. Because the last I checked, everybody that abandons their faith in Jesus Christ because of the existence of evil has fixed nothing. Every person that comes and says, Pastor, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not anymore because my parents got a divorce or my spouse died or my child had something horrible happen to him. All these things. You know what still remains? That evil. So I ask people, I say, if you have rejected Jesus on the base of something terrible that's happened in your life, now that you've rejected God, have, has the problem been fixed? Well, no. Exactly. Your rejection of God is not fixing the problem. The only fix for the problem is to understand that we are in the now and not yet. 